We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you haven't made your way there, now would be a good time to do that. And as we get underway, I just want to share with you, uh, 2010, a husband, a father, and a business owner uh, got up and went to work like any other day that he had done that. What he didn't know was that before that day would end, his wife would find him shot to death on the floor of the very business that he owned at point-blank range. There was no sign of a struggle. There was cash that was an open view, but was left behind. So this was not a robbery that went wrong. It was a homicide. Believing that the killer would most likely attend the funeral, detectives recorded the funeral. The funeral was eulogized by this man's pastor. This man was a fine deacon in his church and happened to be the best friend of the pastor. And the pastor stood behind the pulpit and did his job as the pastor of the church and eulogizing the funeral of his best friend. What detectives didn't know at the time was the very man that they were looking for was actually the man who was standing behind the pulpit eulogizing the funeral. This pastor and supposed best friend of this slain brother had been in an adulterous relationship with this man's wife for years. And if I can be clear, this was not a church that used the NIV. Uh, This is not a church that used the ESV or the message or the New American Standard. Uh, This wasn't a church that didn't have Baptists in its name. No, let me tell you about this church. This church was a proud, independent, fundamental, King James, Bible-believing local church. And I am not sharing anything with you that has not been shared on national crime shows for millions and millions of people to see. Some of you may know exactly what I'm referring to. And after I process the grisly details of this situation, I couldn't sleep that night. I could not sleep. The question that always arises when things like this happen in church, if you would, is how does that happen? How can that happen? We start to get some answers to that question this morning as we discuss when men slide. And that discussion brings us to a very critical truth, a critical principle. This really lays the foundation for where we're going in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is this. Listen, people do not face plant in life overnight. They never do. People do not face plant in life overnight. No pastor wakes up one day and decides 
that he's going to pursue his best friend's wife and murder his best friend. No one wakes up and says on a whim and decides to do such egregious things. No, those decisions, listen, are always the conclusion of what's been mounting compromises. Like secretly desiring his best friend's wife without repenting of that. And as that desire intensified, his flesh would have persuaded him that her husband and his best friend was, uh, was weak and less of a man than him, which would have boosted his confidence that he could have his best friend's wife. His heart and his desire for his own wife would have already been in decline. And once his heart was lit on fire for another woman, his very own marriage would have become nothing more than just an arrangement. They were roommates, basically. And as far as the church knew, from what they could tell, it seemed like the pastor and his wife had the kind of marriage that everybody would want to have. It looked picture perfect. But I can assure you that behind closed doors, the pastor's wife knew better. She might not have known the depths of her husband's darkness, but she knew what every wife knows when her husband begins to slide, and that is his heart and his eyes have departed from me. Every wife knows when that happens, when the heart of her husband and when his eyes depart from her, she knows it. It doesn't matter the picture he's painting in public. It's what she knows when they're in private. See, she notices how kind and how jovial he seems to be when he talks to other women. How attentive he seems to be, how sensitive and caring and polite he is when he engages with other women. How his eyes wander in public when he believes she's not looking. Most of that would not bother her if he were that way with her, but he's not. In private, his wife finds him, listen, to be cold, distant, disinterested, and even secretive. Why is he in the basement at 1130 at night and I'm in bed alone? Why is this happening with such frequency? Why do I feel like there are certain parts of his life that are off limits to me? Why is that? Why does that woman approach my husband when I'm standing right next to my husband? Why does she consistently acknowledge him, speak to him, and never acknowledges me? 
Why, why is this happening? Why does my husband, who's the pastor of the church, who preaches to the church about being blameless, why does he think it's okay for him to meet with women for counseling alone in the church? There's no one else in the building. And he frequently counsels women behind closed doors in the church. Why does he do that? By the way, this pastor I'm telling you about began meeting with this woman for counseling. Why is he so guarded with his cell phone? He's never said it to me, but it's rather obvious that I better not go there. I, I, can't, I can't pick it up and check something. Maybe he has a phone number in his cell phone that I think I need because I'm trying to get in contact with someone. But I feel like if I touch his cell phone and do that, he might cut my hand off. She knows that something is off, and in time, God pulls the curtains back on what she's been thinking and feeling for years when the slide finally comes to an end. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, what we're stepping into, everybody, is what we call a turning point. This is a turning point in the life of King David. It's a turning point in the kingdom. It's a turning point in the life of King David's family. This is a turning point. This is the point at which significant change occurs. This is where we are. This will be the kind of change <laughs> that is going to invite and bring, I mean, better consequences. The kind of consequences that if David could have gone back to the moment of this turning point, he would have given his right arm and his right leg to be able to go back to the point where he could have chose differently. And like our opening, it's going to involve adultery. It's going to involve murder. It's going to involve a cover-up. In the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, what we're looking at there is the partial reign of David, where he's only reigning in the kingdom of Judah, the tribe that he was from, and they embrace him as king. But in chapters 5 through 10, we see David in his national reign, where he's reigning over the whole kingdom. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, from chapter 11 through chapter 18 in particular, we're going to come face to face with David's carnal reign. And carnal it was. The details that have been recorded and preserved for us brothers, men in particular, husbands and fathers, are such that we should be arrested if we choose to be dismissive of them. God wants to meet with us. Let me, let me just talk to my brothers for just a moment. 
In the coming weeks and months, as we are walking through 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 18, we're all going to be challenged. We are, as men. As men, as husbands, as fathers, we're going to be challenged. And listen, at times, it's going to be so uncomfortable that you're going to be tempted to get mad at me. (laughs) I promise you. Like, the sign of a good coach is when you go, you know what, I hate that guy right now, but I know that he wants to make me better. Like, those are my best coaches. The coaches that rode me the hardest and demanded the most out of me, it wasn't comfortable. But I knew, hey, this guy really wants me to get better. Hey, I want to grow. I want you to grow with me. But listen, growth is not always fun. It's not always cheap. It's not always easy. God's going to bring you to the mirror of his word, and he's going to show you some things. Let me just encourage you, man. Embrace it. Embrace it and choose to respond. Unless I am, if you're like, okay, dude, I don't know where you're coming from with that. I don't see that anywhere in the word. That's one thing. But if you know this is the Holy Spirit of God dealing with you from the Word of God, you're wasting time and energy getting mad at me. (laughs) Amen. All right, verse 1, chapter 11. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So contextually speaking, verse 1 ought to make a lot more sense to us based on what we walked through in chapter 10. The battle that started in chapter 10 with the children of Ammon, eventually involve the Syrians, as we saw, which Israel defeated. But the issue regarding the children of Ammon remained unsettled. That still had to be dealt with. So a year had passed since then, and it was time to resume that battle. It was time to deal with that issue. Now, when the Syrians regrouped under Hadezra in chapter 10, who was the most powerful king in that Aramean alliance, alliance, sorry, when they regrouped under him and came back to fight Israel in chapter 10, David did not just send Joab, David himself went. Because Hadezra was the real deal. He was the most powerful king in that Aramean alliance. Alliance. I can't say allowance, alliance. Alliance, for crying out loud. I can say alliance. I just said it. Alliance. Why am I saying allowance? Maybe I'm thinking about my kids who are trying to get money from me or something. I don't know. But, but, but David perceived that to be such a threat that, listen, I, I can't just send Joab. I, I've got to go myself. I've got to lead these troops. I, I've got to directly engage myself into this battle, and he would have been right to do so. And what is evident from verse 1 is that when this battle resumed, 
he should have done just that. He should have led his troops back into battle and engaged in the battle himself. The Bible tells us this was the time when kings go forth to battle. So why did he send Joab again? Instead of leading the men himself. Listen, the answer to that question can go in a number of directions. It really can. But circumstantially speaking, here's why I believe he sent Joab and why he stayed in Jerusalem. When he learned that the Syrians were coming back to battle under Hadar he said, my men need me. This is, this is going to be a fight. These are some bad dudes. I've got to be there. But now it's just the children of Ammon who had hired the Syrians to help battle Israel. But they did not have the help of the Syrians this time. The Syrians says we're not helping them anymore. They made peace with David. They became his servants. They were defeated. So he's not, Israel's not fighting the children of Ammon and the Syrians. It's just the children of Ammon. Additionally, the kingdom has exploded by this time. And guess what? Israel has not lost a battle. As a matter of fact, I mean, you look at chapters 8 and chapter 10, they were getting it done on a massive scale. Why would that change now? Especially against the children of Ammon who did not even believe they could beat us without help. All right, hang with me. Men begin to slide when they possess, listen, a misplaced confidence. That's when a man, <laughs> this is one of the places, and this is when a man begins to slide, is when his confidence is misplaced. Listen, this is a man, listen, <laughs> who is dripping in self-confidence. He's dripping in it. It is so strong on him that it's like cologne. You can smell it. It's all over him. It's in his countenance. It's in his speech. It's in his behavior. There's, listen, this is the kind of man who believes that there is nothing that life can throw at him that he can't solve. Bring it on. I can handle it. The knowledge, the power, the resources that he's attained, and they have persuaded him. Listen, <laughs> they have persuaded him without him realizing it. They have persuaded him that not even God can throw something at me that I can't handle. Bring it on. Though he would never admit it out loud, but he disagrees with Jesus in that he believes that, listen, that man really can live by bread alone. He doesn't agree with Jesus. No, man can live by bread alone. The apostle Paul might have been a good man, but uh, this man does not believe that he needs to pray without ceasing. He's dripping in self-confidence. We made a bold statement a few weeks ago that went like this. 
any believer, group, or church that places a low priority on private and corporate prayer will eventually face plant spiritually. Here's what ultimately led me to say that. Listen, I understand why Israel ultimately went to war with the children of Ammon. I do. But when you read chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, and you read the same account of this in 1 Chronicles chapters 19 and 20, I want to ask you a question. At what point do you ever see David going to God in prayer? You don't. Let me know if you find it. (laughs) No, 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 no. You don't find it. And here we are in chapter 11 where the battle is resuming and the decision is made to send Joab and tarry at Jerusalem. Does he pray? Does he seek God? No. He didn't need to pray. Why? We got this. We got it. The children of Amen are no match for my boys. I can relax. We got it. He reeked of self-confidence. But what he didn't know is what men don't know who are dripping with self-confidence. What was lurking around the corner was a bona fide face plant. It was coming. Hey, would you hear this? Only the self-confident believe they can succeed without prayer. (laughs) They can make it. They can win. They can accomplish it. They can get it done. Don't need to pray. Don't need to trust I got it. With all this in mind, it takes us back to a few prohibitions that God gave to kings, which would have been very applicable to David at this point in his life. We go back to Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, but that's his kings. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord had said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So here it is. Horses represented military power. Silver and gold represented wealth. This was the issue. The reason that God forbade kings from multiplying horses, silver, and gold was because he knew that they would be tempted to place their confidence in those things. He knew that. And based on that, we need to revisit an incident in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that It's easy to gloss over, and we might have done that. I saved it just for this. 
But in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 4, we, we see something here that is very interesting. And David took from him, now keep in mind, this is, this is in the midst of great victory. This is happening in the midst of the kingdom expanding and exploding. 2 Samuel 8 verse 4, And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen, and David hoofed all the chariot horses. So when he hoofed all the chariot horses, it meant that he disabled or he hamstrung these horses so that they could never be used in war again. Okay? All good. If the verse stopped there, we'd be doing great. But it doesn't stop there, does it? No, there's a little bit more. What's the rest of it? But reserved of them for an hundred chariots. Why would David save enough horses for a hundred chariots? That is not in agreement with not multiplying horses. Why would you do that? Israel didn't use chariots at this point. (laughs) It's, why? His confidence was shifting. Why was his confidence shifting? His confidence was shifting, brothers, because, listen, his heart was changing. See, the man who was a man after God's own heart, by the time you get to chapter 11, he's on the roof that day. He was a man after his own heart, not God's. And from what we see in Deuteronomy 17, the concern with kings multiplying horses was trusting in horses was associated with trusting in the world, Egypt. That was the concern. That was God's concern. God did not want His people trusting, running to Egypt for help, to get their horses, to get their support. God says, I don't want that for you. I brought you out of Egypt, and I want to keep Egypt out of you. I don't want you going back. Look at Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. God says, don't do this. And would you hear the very words of David himself? Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He knew. (laughs) David's confidence rested in his military, not the Lord, hence the absence of prayer. The dead giveaway to God, the telltale sign that you are dripping in self-confidence is when you are prayerless. You, you approach decisions, you look at things, you run it through your logic system and your knowledge bank, and 
your expertise and with great confidence, you make decisions. Why? Because you got it. You know better. You've lived long enough. You've learned enough. (laughs) What's the point of going to God and waiting? Waiting for what? I already know. You know what's really scary about that? This is how a number of men lead their families. They're making decisions that are based on this, not this and this. They are so convinced they know what they're doing. But kings were also tempted to trust in silver and gold as well. Can I just say, with a child in college and another one that will soon follow, so I remember at one point we had two kids in diapers at the same time and on formula at the same time. That was, I thought that was something. I'd give anything for that now. Uh, but with two kids in college, essentially, believe me when I tell you um, I'm an advocate for sound financial stewardship. I believe in it. I believe in giving beyond the tithe. I believe in saving. I believe we should spend wisely. I believe that we should absolutely stay out of debt, especially credit card debt. That puts a chokehold on your family. It will smother you to death. It's evil. By the way, anyone who quips about, you know, tithing and how that's not for the New Testament believer, I would encourage you to maybe study your Old Testament just a little closer, because if you do, what you're going to realize is that the Jews actually gave more than 10%. They actually gave somewhere around 23%. So if we were really to be technical on tithing, we would be pushing 23% somewhere in that neighborhood. We don't. Just FYI. But, but here's where I'm going ultimately. Listen, wise stewards never place confidence in resources. They do not. They do not place confidence in resources. They don't. We are called to manage resources. We're not called to trust in them. Big difference there. Proverbs 23, verse 5. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not for riches? Would you say this next word with me? Certainly. Make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Listen, the person who builds a strong Retirement portfolio to only place confidence in it is no better than the person who has not saved a penny. They're not. You do not win with God when your confidence is misplaced. You don't win with Him. When you tell God, I I, I trust you somewhat. But when it comes to my horses and my silver and my gold, (laughs) 
That, that's where I double down. Because no matter what's coming at me, I, between my horses and my silver and my gold inventory, I think we can handle it. And that is when men begin to slide because in their reckless, arrogant, prideful estimation, they don't need God. Let me tell you, the best and the only place for a man to dwell is in a desperate place. He's always desperate for God. I'm desperate for you. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your knowledge. I need your understanding. I need your counsel. I need your direction. I I agree with you, God, that without you, I can do nothing. I don't believe I can handle anything in and of myself. I don't believe that I can go days and weeks without the bread of life, without prayer. I, God, I'm not that foolish. God, I recognize that my life, as I know it, my family, listen, I know this. Trust me, I know this. If God took his hand of grace and faithfulness and mercy and love and goodness and protection, if God took his hand off my family for a second, I tremble at what could happen. I tremble. If God took his hand off my family. Boy, that sets the stage for disaster when a man believes he's got it, though. Which brings us to verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. What a contrast. What a contrast we have here in verse 2. While David's men were on the battlefield in the capital city of the Ammonites, risking their lives, he was on the roof of his luxurious palace coveting the wife of a man who was on the battlefield risking his life for David's honor. So you got Uriah the Hittite, which we'll talk more about next week, on the battlefield risking his life for his king. And what is his king doing? His king is standing on the roof of his palace coveting his wife. This man was willing to die for his king. (laughs) Wow. Hey, men always begin to slide when they place themselves in a compromised position. 
Mark it down. Mark it down. Brothers, a man with a misplaced confidence and a compromised position is not just sliding, he's free-falling. Any study of this account exposes us to a lot of conjecture about Bathsheba, particularly, you know, her being a willing participant in this. We'll talk more about that. I will tell you this. Uh, the Bible does not say that explicitly. Uh, you, you, you can at best read into that, but the Bible does not say that explicitly. I will also say this, and we'll talk more about this, but the act of bathing that she was doing was proper. And she was doing it in the evening. A lot of times I heard people talk about this as if this was in broad daylight. No, it was in the evening tide. But as it relates to men sliding, we must establish this. This is so critical, guys. When men are out of position, they will always find themselves in the wrong position. When a man is not where he should be, he's always going to find himself where he shouldn't be. David was out of position, and where did he find himself? In the wrong position. History would say that, listen, it would have been better for David, and I think if he could be here today and I could ask him this, or if he sat here, I think he would say amen. It would have been better for him to lead his men into battle and die on the battlefield than it would have been for him to be on the roof that evening. Amen. He would say amen to that. Based on what came out of that decision. Brothers, here's when I know. I, I, I haven't been doing this for five minutes, okay? I've been a little bit longer than that. But here's when I know that a man is sliding. Here's when I know that a man is in trouble. Here's when I know that a man's family's in trouble. Is when a man consistently positions himself to be away from church and godly men. He's sliding. He's sliding. Hey, listen, I have never, that's a strong word, never. I have never seen a man who does that, listen, when, as a man, when, as a husband, when, as a father. I've never seen a man when, when, that, when a man consistently positions himself to be away from church and to be away from godly men, he will lose. That only leads him to being out of position, 
time after time after time. And what comes with that is a mountain of temptation, just like we see here with David. And listen, position always informs perspective, does it not? It always does. So when a man is out of position, guess what he can't see right? He doesn't see God right. He doesn't see his wife right. doesn't see his kids right. Why? He's out of position. There are things that are happening in his family that demand his attention. But because his position is compromised, he can't see it. There are things that are happening right under his nose. His wife is struggling. His children are struggling. The devil has gained a foothold in his home. And he can't see it. He's out of position. The devil is having his way with his family. But he's compromised. Not that I'm anyone, you know that by now. But one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons that I am able to stand before you this morning in this capacity is because of five very critical men in my life. That's, this is one of the main reasons why I'm here this morning. Pastor Dave Hill, Pops, led me to Christ. You see the picture on the screen here? Pastor Dave Hill led me to Christ. You know the guy in the middle? Sam Miles, Alan Shelby, big brother, John Wright, upper right-hand corner there, and then my well-beloved, dearest friend and brother in life, Pastor Troy Stocksdale. Listen, wherever those men positioned themselves is where I positioned myself. Wherever they were is where you were going to find me. That's where I was. Listen, (laughs) you ready? This is where I learned that a man doesn't have sex with a woman who's not his wife. This is where I learned that a man never even considers dating a woman who doesn't know God and have a strong walk with him. That's where I learned that. This is where I learned that what it meant to be a husband and a father. That's where I learned it. That's where I learned it. Uh, That's where I learned to come after God with my very best, not my leftovers. That's where I learned that to be Laodicean is disgraceful. That's where I learned it. Wherever those men were, I was their shadow. They modeled for me 
what it meant to be a man. And they demanded that I respond. This is how you're going to think. This is how you're going to speak. This is how you're going to live. That guy in the middle, that's, that was on my wedding day. I was getting ready to marry this wonderful woman right here. And just as he's always done, he was giving me one last set of instruction that I can't repeat. <laughs> Tough love, that guy in the middle. Tough love sometimes. Talk about love hurts. I've got some Sam Miles scars, but they're good. Listen, a silent question that godly men frequently ask themselves is this. You ready? Where are the godly men gathering? Where? And the reason they ask that question is because whatever the answer is speaks to where they're going to be. Wherever the godly men are gathering is where a godly man is going to keep himself. Brothers, I'm no scholar, clearly not a genius. You're like, I'm glad you said it, so I don't have to. I'm your man. I'm helping you out. But here's what I know, unmistakably, is when a man wants it. When a man wants it, it's unmistakable. When a man wants to be discipled, when a man wants to learn God's word, when a man wants to serve God, when a man wants to love God, when a man wants to be a godly husband, he wants to be a godly father. When a man wants to break the cycle of a father who was awful and terrible and carnal, and he says, I'd rather die before I become that. When a man, he, when he wants to embrace what the Bible says to him as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a servant, as a soldier, when he wants that, he wants it. It's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. You never have to question or wonder, is he coming today? If I can quote the head coach of Colorado Buffaloes, Deion Sanders, he coming. <laughs> Not he's coming. He coming. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know Kyle does. Ertl. <laughs> All right. All right, good. Hey, listen. A man's decisions always tell the truth about what he really wants. Decisions never lie, do they? They don't. They don't. And listen, men who are frequently out of position, hang with me, 
choose to be. That's what they want. You show me a man that says, you know what? Um, Their relationships are like this. You, you can't get any closer than this. I, I want it that way. I don't want you close enough to see my business, and I don't want to be any closer to you to see yours. You do you, I do me, we're good. Those five men you saw on the screen, they were in my business. All up in it, <laughs> as we would say. And a few of them are still all up in it. <laughs> Trust me. W- would you turn to 1 Kings 13? 1 Kings 13, and I'm wrapping up, and are you like, dude, are you going to finish sometime today? I'm getting there. Hang with me. Brothers, my heart, I've been burning. I'm, 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 I'm burdened. This, this is, uh, I do believe. And ladies, listen, this is, this, this is not giving you a break. Is the Holy Spirit talking to you as well? I know he is, right? Sure. But for the next foreseeable future, this, the stuff we're going to be looking at, it puts the spotlight on us as men, I'm telling you. Trust me. Um, I'm watching the time. First Kings 13, you, you got a prophet, a man of God, who was given some very clear instructions about position, about where he needed to be. Pick it up in verse 8. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So far, so great. He did exactly what God told him to do. He went, he rebuked the king. The king offered him. He said, no, God told me not to do that. I'm leaving. Okay, we get to verse 14. And went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. So this is the man now who is saying that he too is a prophet and he is confronting or trying to befriend this very prophet that we just read. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, verse 15. Then he said unto him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me, By the word of the Lord, thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. Think this man knew the word of God. Yes, he knew the word of God, didn't he? Verse 18, he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him, so he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drink water. It's funny. He says, an an angel. (laughs) What did Paul say in Galatians? Like, even if an angel preach another gospel, let him be accursed. (laughs) 
Okay, and then you look at Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we have two men who compromised their position. The first man we looked at, the man of God, the prophet, was mauled to death by a lion. The second man, Jonah, who disobeyed God regarding where he should have been, was swallowed whole by a whale. Here's my point, brothers. A compromised position welcomes disaster into a man's life. On the roof that day, what King David did was put the welcome mat out, opened the front door of his life to disaster and said, come on in, make yourself at home. Brothers, a misplaced confidence, a compromised position, says you're free-falling. What have you heard from the Lord today? Lord, we've looked at many things today. I don't know the heart of every man in this room or those who are watching or listening, but I know that you do. And I know that whatever you needed to say to all of them, you've, you've done it, including me. You've spoken to me through all this and God, I do pray that men would not harden their hearts. I pray against them plugging their ears. I I pray against them uh, becoming defensive and making excuses, Lord, that they would embrace what you're saying. Why wouldn't they? So, Father, would you help us as we continue to plow forward in this section of 2 Samuel and do the kind of business with us that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.